LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, what if age is just a number? I am now, I am told, 55 years old, teetering on the brink of 56, which is odd because I feel almost exactly like I did when I was 28. I may actually be a little more energetic and I'm arguably in slightly better shape. This may be partly to do with my gluttonous diet and relative laziness in my 20s and partly to do with the wise counsel I have received from leading scientists on this podcast, like Peter Atia and Kelly McGonigal on exercise, Tim Spector and Chris Van Tulliken on how to optimize your diet, and Russell Foster about the importance of sleep. Or maybe I just got a bit lucky with genetics, but I don't take any of this for granted. Looking at people around me, I'm confident the next decade is likely to involve a certain amount of humility. But here I am in my mid-50s, feeling like I'm only midway through my career. Like there's several more chapters that remain in front of me. I don't know what they are. At times, I felt like I was making clear, linear progress. And other times, when learning something new or starting from scratch, I felt like I was taking a step backwards, reassuming the humility of of a beginner, sometimes learning from people younger than me. Is that okay? Should I feel comfortable starting from scratch in my 50s and 60s and 70s, learning from young whippersnappers, perhaps even reporting to people 10 or 20 or 30 years my junior? I just want to jump in here, Rufus, to say that I would be okay if you want to report to me. Caleb, that is very accommodating of you. We're hearing from our uh, esteemed producer, Caleb, who is all of... I think 32 years old, Caleb, is that right? That is, yeah. Sprightly. All right, just (laughs) out of college. Basically. I have 23 years on you, Caleb, and yet you have more knowledge than I do in uh, any number of realms. I'm sure you're aware of all of them, such as the world of podcasting and more specifically sound engineering. You're well-read. You're a cultural omnivore. And despite the conspicuous advantages of my 23 years of additional life experience, we're very much collaborators. Absolutely, we are. And I think to an extent that, you know, would have been uncommon and really unusual for two people of such different ages, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. It really properly should be a mentor uh, relationship where I'm mentoring you, Caleb, but I feel like there's kind of some reciprocal mentoring going on here. Yeah, I think that's right. We mentor each other. And, you know, our working relationship is an example of the kind of dynamic that Mauro Guillen, our guest today, says we're likely to see a lot more of in the coming decades. Why? Because people are living longer, not just living longer, but enjoying longer health spans. And technology is entirely changing the jobs that are available to all of us. 
Yeah, and I think you're right to point to technology. I think that's actually one of the reasons we are such effective collaborators, which is that, you know, regardless of the difference of age, we are both trying to figure out how to get good at a medium at podcasting that just didn't exist 20 years ago. So we are both novices. Totally true. Yeah, no, it's, it's been fun starting from scratch. And right now we're watching AI begin to make dramatic changes to job descriptions everywhere. Lord knows what kind of jobs we'll have, Caleb, in, in a decade. Replacing some jobs entirely and creating very exciting new opportunities. So all of us, irrespective of age, are going to need to be ready to drop everything and learn new skills. Uh, and maybe even learning from young whippersnappers like yourself, Caleb. Well, should we tell the listeners a little bit more about Mara, who's our guest today? Of course we should. You see, there is an example right there, Caleb. Wise counsel beyond your years. Do you want to share his background? Yeah, sure. So he was born in Spain, he was educated at Yale, and he's now a professor at Wharton. He's the author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. And his latest book, which was just published this week, is called The Perennials, The Mega Trends Creating a Post-Generational Society. And the argument he makes there in a nutshell is that we all have to change our mindsets going forward, that young people like me have to come to terms with the fact that our career trajectories are not going to be straightforward and we have to prepare, we have to plan accordingly. And he's going to explain how we can do that in this episode. And meantime, old people like you have to find ways to make sure that the blistering pace of social change and technological innovation doesn't leave them behind. And he talks about that in the episode too. Excuse me, did you say old people like me? Is that what <laughs> I you thought said? I could slip that in, yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. All right, I'll take it. Yeah, so Morrow tells us that we need to entirely revamp our approach to education, rethink the way we live, the centrality of the nuclear family, and move beyond what he calls the sequential model of life. Learn, work, retire. Retirement, he believes, is overrated. He does, which I think means that I'm stuck with you for a while. Yes, you are. So we better make the most of it. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Mauro Guillen, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Rufus, for inviting me. Mauro, when you were a kid and people asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Did you say, I want to train as a sociologist at Yale and become a professor at Wharton? No, no, that came a little bit later. That came during my second or third year in college. I really wanted to be uh, somebody who would uh, run an organization. So I really wanted to be a manager, I think, when I was like uh, Interesting. a younger. Uh, but then uh, in college, I started working with a professor on research, and I loved it so much that I changed my mind. It is a funny thing, isn't it, that we ask children, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because it seems to be there, there are two assumptions built into that question. The first is, 
you will only have one profession in your lifetime, right? You get to pick one thing that you'll that you'll do for a living. And the second is that we don't just do this profession, you will be your profession. You know, so in the first moments that grown-ups interact with kids, we're already imposing this kind of conceptual constraint on what they can do with their lives. I think that pressure is counterproductive, especially now that technology changes so fast and the economy is changing so fast. And uh, so perhaps we won't have just one career, we'll have several careers. So, so we have to stop putting all of that pressure on young people, telling them that they have to make a faithful, lifelong decision early on. It's always struck me as kind of irrational and bizarre that we have these distinct phases of life. We, you know, we, we say, okay, you have a few years where you just get to play with your friends, right? <laughs> and, then, and then we're going to learn, 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 do nothing but learn. And then we're going to work, 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 nothing but work. And then we retire and we put our hands behind our heads and put up our feet and reflect back on our lovely lives. And then we die. And that's and, and this is the the sequence, and I, I wonder where that came from. I mean, do you think? I mean, I imagine part of it is that the average lifespan a hundred years ago was something like fifty four in the U.S. So, so maybe in the context of a much shorter lifespan and more physical labor, that this made sense. Where, where do you think this came from? Well, it came from uh, about one hundred and thirty or so years ago, when one country after another in the world introduced two innovations. One was universal schooling. And so universal schooling then created a boundary between infancy, when we just play, and when you, you become a school child. Uh, so mm -hmm, in other mm -hmm. words, that was the first boundary that was uh, created. And then also about 130 years ago or so, countries around the world started to introduce uh, state pension plans. And that's what demarcated uh, the boundary between work life and retirement. So those two policy innovations essentially created this uh, sequential stage model of life. It, it certainly feels today like this sequencing and the intensity that we approach each phase is really doing us all a disservice, isn't it? I mean, I, I see it with my children. I, I have my, my oldest son, Mauro, is, is headed to college uh, just next week. But this notion that as a child, you will do nothing but learn. We're going to force feed you information. That's all you will do. It, I think for many kids, it's hard to enjoy the beautiful process of learning when it's just there's so much intensity applied to your performance and you do nothing else. Um, and then, of course, the moment that we really start to appreciate learning is when we it's taken from us, right? I mean, mm -hmm. just when you, exactly. you, you, you start working in the workplace and you realize, oh my gosh, that was a great deal. I had all those years where I could do nothing but study things of interest to me, that's when you really begin to appreciate it and crave learning. And now you're, you're really not supposed to do it anymore. You're just supposed to work. It does seem like a bizarre way to organize human lives. But as you point out, and I think this is part of the thesis of your book, the absurdity of this sort of sequential model of life is becoming more clear because right now our health spans and lifespans are getting longer. The 60 plus demo is the fastest growing and technology is just fundamentally transforming the workplace, right? Uh, and this transformation is accelerating right now. We all need to be able to engage in the process of, of learning. So it, it seems like a pretty important time to rethink and remodel this, this approach. Exactly right. And uh, in addition to uh, the argument that you just made about why it is important for us to start 
rethinking the sequential model of life, we also have all of those people uh, who essentially don't make the transition from one stage to the next at the appropriate time. And then yeah. they get completely sidelined, right? So here I'm talking about high school dropouts. I'm talking yeah. about teenage mothers. I'm talking yes. about uh, children who uh, are part of the foster care system at some point. They have a very hard time making the transition from one stage to the next. So as a country, as a society, we are wasting their talent because yes. unless people conform to the sequential model of life and they make the transitions at the right time, we essentially tell them, well, you have not succeeded, so now you're going to have uh, a lesser life uh, than those of us who have managed to move from one stage to the other. Yes, and I think you point out that this is, if you add up teen mothers and foster care kids and people who are recovering from addictions or have recovered from addictions, mm -hmm. it adds up to a, a huge number of people. I think you estimate about 50 million Americans, mm -hmm. like 15% of the entire population, who uh, get left behind. And if our system was a little bit more forgiving in terms of the sequencing, the times in our lives when we were educated, retooled, engaged in, in the workplace, we could have a system that was much more inclusive and forgiving of, pe of people who approach the sequencing differently. No, exactly right. Uh, so it's the equivalent of about 20% of the American population. So what this means, Rufus, is that we're wasting the potential and the talent of 20% of Americans. And as you said, that's adding up all of the high school dropouts, all of the recovering addicts, all of the teenage mothers, and all of the foster care children who are of working age right now, okay? So not just the ones who are in that situation as of today, but the ones who have been in the past, but today are part of the labor force. But once again, they have uh, missed one of those transitions and therefore uh, we're not fully utilizing their talent. Just to give you an example, only 2% of teenage mothers graduate from college. Astounding. Uh, versus, you know, like 50% in the general population. As you point out, the current system is also difficult for mothers in general. Absolutely. Uh, because you see, the sequential model of life was designed for men, men who didn't take any responsibilities in the household. Yep. It wasn't designed for women, right? And therefore, women have had a very hard time making it possible for them to be mothers and at the same time to have careers. So we need to change the system. We need to introduce more flexibility. We need to introduce alternative pathways, not just one linear pathway for everybody. We've been talking on this podcast about the impact of artificial intelligence on mm -hmm. uh, on the world, which, which is obviously it, it's it's a, it's an exciting and and nerve wracking moment. And as you point out at one point. According to the World Economic Forum, two-thirds of children entering grade school will work in jobs that don't exist yet. We really need to have a much more dynamic system or process of, I, I, I mean, I think in, at one point you describe an approach that might involve going back to school every 20 years or so to learn a set of new skills, shift careers. Although on the other hand, it, it, people may choose to just be constantly learning and upskilling as they go. Technological change is making whatever it is that we know obsolete much faster than in the past. So either you are learning continuously, as you just suggested, or you take a break every 10 or 15 years or maybe 20 years and uh, try to update your skills or maybe even learn a new set of skills. That's the world we're going into. Let's talk about the nuts and bolts of how our education system 
is changing right now and how it needs to change with all this in mind. And it, it might be useful to take a step back and talk about the educational system that we currently have and, and where it comes from. You write that um, in the 19th century, the purpose of education was to, quote, create an army of docile workers. The, the focus of education was on sort of obedience, punctuality. There were single correct answers to questions. This is where our education system came from. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it was also literacy, right? I mean, you needed workers to be able to yeah. read instructions, right? So it was very basic. But of course, today, what we need for this new global uh, economy that is centered on knowledge, we need people who are more creative, who know how to work in teams and so on and so forth. And unfortunately, the education sector hasn't changed and hasn't changed, especially in one very important dimension. Uh, so I want to make a connection to the previous topic that we were discussing. Yeah. So our education system is completely stratified by age. So we have educational institutions for people of a certain age. But what we need in the future is more multi-generational learning because we're going to have people learning at different stages in life and we shouldn't compartmentalize their learning. So we should have in the same classroom, whether it's a physical classroom or a virtual classroom, people from different generations. That should be the goal. And uh, we're only in the beginning of this because uh, the educational sector, and I've been working at a university for the longest time, changes very, very slowly. We're very bad at innovation, but we need to move in that direction, multi-generational learning, because once again, people have to learn not just at the beginning of their lives, but throughout their lives. Well, Mauro, I, I will say that going over my son's course options for his freshman year in college, I just got so excited and thought, I, I really want to go with him and, and <laughs> take all these classes. I'm sure your son thinks otherwise. <laughs> I think he does think otherwise. Right. And, and, and so this, this really gets to a question, right, which is, which is do we actually foresee a mix of undergraduates uh, of all ages in in decades to come? Do you think that's where things will go, or do you think? Well, yeah, I think uh, we will continue to have uh, you know the, the traditional college experience for younger people. However, there are universities, and one of them is actually a very good and very prominent university, Columbia University in New York. Yes, yes, Columbia actually allows uh, both uh, the uh, classic undergraduates who are you know, 18, 19 years old to take classes along with uh, the students in the professional studies school, which are people who couldn't go to college when they were young, but they're now in their 30s or 40s and they're getting, uh, well, a degree from Columbia. So both of them actually interact in the classroom. And I've asked Columbia undergraduates, the younger ones, what do they think about this? And they say it's very enriching. I actually refer to this in the book. I think it's a very, very interesting experiment, and it's uh, only Columbia University that has done that. When we think about how we go about educating our children and our college students, does that need to change? Oh, absolutely. Because I think what we should be doing is helping people acquire the ability to learn. So we don't need to teach them huge amounts of technical you know, knowledge. What people need to acquire at an early age is the ability to learn. Because once again, they'll have to learn again in the future. Now, in addition to that, what companies tell me is that they also want young people to learn certain kinds of skills that presently are not taught at most colleges and universities or high schools, which is the ability to work in teams, the ability to collaborate, the ability to negotiate, emotional intelligence, conflict resolution, all of these things, all of those skills, which I would call 
social skills are in high demand by employers, but we don't teach them at most colleges, universities, or high schools. Is this a return to the values of liberal arts education? Uh, I mean, it's funny that when I, I was a, focused on literature and history and a classic liberal arts education when I was an undergraduate. And in the years that followed, the focus has moved towards more of a professionalization, right, of, of, of uh, you know, you know fo focus on specific skills, more focus on the sciences, less on, on the humanities. Do you think that we're witnessing a, a, a re-emphasis on the, on the humanities? Well, I hope so. And you see, what the humanities give you is, uh, first, they teach you how to read effective, efficiently and how to write well. And those are two essential skills. If you want to be a good learner, you have to be a very good reader and a very good writer. Okay. And then the second thing that I think uh, the humanities give you is uh, critical thinking skills. And those are going to be really important. You were mentioning the professionalization of uh, yeah. you know, education. Well, if you choose today that you want to be you know, uh, studying this uh, because there's a clear career path for you, good luck. Because if artificial intelligence then replaces those workers, you're stuck. So I think what's important is to acquire the ability to learn new things. That's what's really important. And to have critical thinking skills and all of the other social skills that I mentioned earlier. And this is what I tell parents and their kids. Don't run yourself into a corner because things are changing so fast. You may be making a decision today as to what to study that you think is ideal because there's a lot of jobs. But once again, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, most of the jobs that current students will take have not yet been created. So I think uh, when people have very fixed ideas as to what is a good course of study because there's a lot of jobs out there, I think they may be seriously you know, fooling themselves because once again, yeah, technology and yeah. the economy are changing so fast. You know, I, I imagine that for many people listening, the idea of taking a year off every 10 to 15 years to go back to school and learn new things sounds like a wonderful luxury, but it, it sounds maybe not financially feasible for, for most people. I mean, I wonder how we get to something like that or, or if we'll see something more like night courses or other approaches. I wonder if we'll see employers, you know, paying for learning sabbaticals. Do you think that this is a, uh, an unattainable luxury or do you think that we need to find ways to restructure things so, so that it's feasible? Well, it's no longer going to be a luxury for all of the reasons that we have been discussing. I think it's going to no. be a necessity. However, as you also pointed out, it is perhaps possible to use remote learning, which is much more cost-effective and less disruptive, yes to uh, also acquire uh, or to undertake the same kind of learning. But uh, going back to the uh, taking a sabbatical and uh, every now and then, I think uh, we should probably start persuading people that that's a good thing to do. And that maybe one thing they should do is save for such sabbaticals over their lifetime. Yeah, so yeah. not only save for uh, you know retirement, which I think has been completely oversold. So maybe spend less time in retirement, but more time during your life taking sabbaticals to learn new things. Well, and, and, and one, of, one of the points that you make, which resonates for me, is that if we take, take this approach of assuming that we may change careers every 10, 15, 20 years, that one of the things that this makes possible for, for people is to not put this enormous stress that a lot of teenagers might feel today to make a permanent decision about mm -hmm. your vocation um, and have more of a view that, hey, 
you're beginning a process of experimentation. Really, the question is, what, what sequence of, of career opportunities might you like to have? And hey, if you try something and it, and it doesn't quite work, there's ample opportunities to pursue other forms of education and pursue other careers entirely. One of the nice silver linings here is not, not only that those of us who are older like the idea of going back to school and continuing our education, but also it reduces the, this, this enormous stress that, that I think is on a lot of kids in their late teen years, early 20s, to make a permanent decision about their path. Absolutely right. And uh, remember that uh, one of the symptoms of this problem are the rates of mental illness among mm, teenagers. Yeah. And, and unfortunately also, as you know, the suicide rate has gone through the roof in yeah, the United States yeah. as well as in other countries. We're putting way too much pressure on teenagers and unnecessarily so, because once again, making a faithful lifelong decision now as to what you want to be is not what people should be aiming for because it doesn't matter how, how much they think about it. Conditions are likely to be very different in 15 years or 20 years. And so they're going, they're going to have to change that decision anyway. It is an incredibly interesting time in education. And of course, online education is, is in a period of, of, of enormous uh, change and, and innovation. And how do you see that evolving? I mean, right now, there's a sense that online courses and certificates are cool, but I don't know how seriously they're taken by mm -hmm. employers and whether they have the weight of, a, of an elite university education. Do you, do you think that will change over time? I think it will change. I think uh, we've already seen the first change. The first change is that uh, people are increasingly appreciating the quality of an online education. So, uh, you know, just uh, five years ago before the pandemic, nobody really believed in online education. They thought it was a, a second best to in-person education. But now I think most people see value in online education. I think the next uh, step would be to persuade employers to, as you said, uh, attach the same kind of value to an online degree uh, or to online program or certificate than to one uh, which was uh, obtained uh, through classroom instruction. But you know, in general, I believe that competition will bring us to where we want to be. That is to say, there's going to be more startups, there's going to be more organizations that are going to be offering online education. And as consumers, as people like you and I make their choices as to what is a good program, what is a bad program, we're going to see in general an increase in quality. And sooner or later, employers will realize that what matters is not uh, you know, the kind of education, whether it's uh, online or not, that people have received, but rather how much that person knows, how much that person can learn in the future. And, uh, and how good that uh, individual is. Augmented reality and mixed reality, virtual reality, the, the, the potential of these technologies to transform the educational experience is, is pretty amazing. And you, you say at one point in the book that you've had your first experience with using some of these technologies and, and you're converted. Can, can you tell us about, about your experience? Yeah, so that was uh, about a year ago. I was invited by a Chinese university to make a presentation. Uh, I make these presentations all the time. So normally I would make the presentation in person, uh, or if it's online, I would use uh, Zoom or Teams or one of those platforms. Mm -hmm, but they told mm -hmm. me, why don't we use the metaverse? So they sent me the, um, you know, the uh, equipment so that I could actually uh, conduct the session uh, through the metaverse. And they had a number of people who uh, could attend, uh, the avatars could attend uh, the session as well. And it was a very interesting 
uh, experience. Uh, very interesting. I could both see the, uh, the advantages and the limitations of the technology, but let me tell you, anything that is immersive, yeah. that's the future of education, especially for younger generations, but also for people of all ages. I think an immersive experience is so much better than uh, other educational options that we have. And uh, remember, you know, when it comes, for example, to a college education, the biggest innovations that we've seen in terms of um, uh, education were about 30 years ago, the slide projector. You remember the slide projector? Oh, sure. And yeah. uh, <laughs> about uh, 20 years ago, PowerPoint. So those have been the only important innovations in higher education over the last uh, 50 years. So I think we can do better. And now we have uh, all of these amazing technologies that we can deploy in the classroom and outside of the classroom. It seems to me that in the next you know, 10, 15, 20 years that the kinds of educational experiences that we'll be able to, to have through some of these mixed reality technologies will be pretty astonishing. I mean, I, I can imagine, for instance, navigating the human brain in mm -hmm. three dimensions or, or the human body to, to, to learn biology mm -hmm. or, you know, designing buildings from the inside out. Or I, I was just in Florence with, with, in Italy with, with, with my family and, you know, walking the streets of Florence during the Renaissance alongside Lorenzo de Medici or solving a mystery in an interactive 3D film that requires you to learn all about, about the history. It seems to me like the, the potential is is pretty astonishing. It's enormous. It's enormous. And that's uh, so we are entering, I think, a new era in education. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing. New currencies come and go. Decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. One comment you make, Mara, at one point is you say, play will not be limited to infanthood weekends and vacations. Um, I thought that was such an interesting comment, right? That if, that if we have a culture of ongoing learning, lifelong learning, that leaving space for play, and I imagine you mean here 
play as a part of learning, play as a part of connecting with other people and other ideas. Is that, is that what you have in mind? Uh, absolutely. And also play as part of work. So I think we have uh, been defining work as something that you have to do, almost like a punishment, yes. with a, a reward, which is, oh, you'll be able to enjoy retirement at some point. So you should try to work as, as, as much as possible. We know that working is not nice, right? But then, you know, you'll get your reward, which is retirement. I think that's the wrong way of approaching the whole thing. I think our jobs should be uh, challenging and should be engaging. Uh, and I think we can accomplish that to a very large extent if we combine them with uh, both learning and play. I love the George Bernard Shaw line, we don't stop playing because we grow old. We grow old because we stop playing. Absolutely. So I guess a consequence of this notion that we can have a series of, of careers throughout our lives, one consequence of this is that we should anticipate that, that we would have people of all ages in, in the workplace, right? That you might have a, as you say, like a, a 65-year-old interning reporting to a 25-year-old. Right. And, and, and right now, that's, I think, a notion that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Do you think we can become comfortable with the idea of, of reporting to people who are 20 or 30 or 40 years younger than we are? I, I think this is changing. So you see, Rufus, uh, 50 years ago, if you were working for General Motors or for IBM, it would be inconceivable that uh, anybody would be reporting to somebody who would be younger. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, all of this has started to change first in the Silicon Valley, where you have, uh, you know, whatever, 17-year-olds being the founders and the bosses, right? Yes, And uh, yes. people with gray hair actually, uh, you know, taking orders from them. Uh, but I think it's already uh, as well changing in many other corporations. And we also see another very important change, which is that mentors now don't have to be necessarily people or employees who are older than you are. So we see reverse mentoring in terms of age happening more and more mm -hmm, frequently mm -hmm. as well. So this is part, once again, of this transformation that I think we should uh, promote in the sense that age is, is, is a relevant thing because biology uh, you know, has an impact on us, but age should not be the determining factor in terms of what we do and at what point in life we do things. So, so getting to the, the, uh, this objective of creating a post-generational society, which is the mm -hmm. sub subtitle of your book, um, when we think about the generations, you know, there's a lot of talk about baby boomers, Gen X, Gen Y, millennials. It seems like uh, journalists like to spend a lot of time, and the media is very fond of talking about, well, this is exactly how a millennial thinks, and here's the problem with the interaction between the Gen Xers and the millennials, and, you know, do you think this kind of focus on generations and the difference between them does us all a disservice or do you think they're useful? I think uh, they are primarily a disservice. Uh, so I think they're baloney. And let me explain why. Yeah. Because as you said, it's an overgeneralization. All we're doing is categorizing people, but not on the basis of their individual characteristics, but rather in terms of uh, the year in which they were born. And you know, the boundaries between generations, like where is the cutoff point, that's entirely artificial. It's arbitrary, right? And not only that, this categorization assumes that everybody in the same generation is the same. And let me tell you, a millennial born in the Bronx behaves in a very different way than a millennial born in Iowa. 
If you don't believe me, let's just uh, make a couple of trips and uh, and uh, we can test uh, the uh, the assertion, right? It's just nonsense to talk about generations. And and by the way, it's a peculiarly American obsession. It started. It started with the contrast between the greatest generation, yep. the one that went through the Great Depression and World War II, and the baby boomers. And granted, the baby boomers were born into affluence, whereas the others had to go through major hardships. Yeah. But you know, after that, uh, we've been trying to look for generational differences. And what we've done is invent those differences. They don't, they don't reflect the reality. We have created those generations in our minds, but they're not real. And, and by the way, I'm sure you've heard that many people rebel against generational labels. Yeah. So you call yeah. somebody a millennial these days and they say, I'm not a millennial. I am John Smith, right? Don't, don't call me millennial. I have a name. I am an individual and you should, you know, appreciate me as an individual. So this generational talk is something that in the United States, the media and marketers have uh, been, you know, touting for many, many years. And I think this has to come to an end because it is absolutely uh, doing us a disservice. And so this notion of of the perennials, which is the title of your book, uh, this is a, a term that was coined by Gina Pal, a serial entrepreneur, who defined perennials as an ever-blooming group of people of all ages, stripes and types, who transcend stereotypes and make connections with each other and the world around them, not defined by their generation. Mm -hmm, exactly. Um, so, so this is really the thrust of the point here, uh, or the selection of your book title here, is that we we need <laughs> we need a new term to contract or put away these generational stereotypes and think of ourselves. We're, we're all in the same boat, living exactly. in a world that's 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 changing rapidly, that requires all of us to be humble about what we know and and don't know, irrespective of our age. Yeah, exactly. And, and let me just give you a, a simpler definition. So a perennial is somebody who doesn't think or act his or her age necessarily. Mm. But, but the important uh, aspect of this here is that what that means is that then we shouldn't constrain ourselves to playing, yeah. learning, working, or resting whenever it is that we are told that we should do that in life at a certain age that we should be players and learners and workers and uh, you should rest at every age throughout our lives, which is the topic that we were discussing earlier. So the perennial mindset is all about doing whatever we think is best for us, regardless of our age, whenever we feel that we should be doing that in order to be happier or in order to be able to adjust better to all of these changes in technology and the economy. If I can ask, Mauro, about your own career plans, do you see yourself as continuing as a as a professor at Wharton for the rest of your career? Do you think you might have another chapter of your career? Do you anticipate retiring? How do you think about your own your own journey? You know, when you look at my my career and my life uh, at a superficial level, people may conclude, well, this guy hasn't changed. He's always been a professor, right? Yeah. But you know, I've been blessed by being a professor in the sense that. Uh, professors, even while remaining professors, they can reinvent themselves many times. So for example, I began my career purely as a teacher and as a researcher, okay? Mm -hmm. And then I added online teaching to my you know, set of uh, activities, which was very revolutionary when I started like uh, some eight or 10 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And then I became an academic administrator. So I started to run things, first an institute and then a whole school as a dean, right? 
So I was reinventing myself. In fact, some people would say that I switched careers because first I was doing research and teaching, then I was doing administration. And more recently, I have uh, you know, become a writer of uh, books, uh, trade books, uh, such as the perennials that seek to reach a wider audience, not just my students. And so I have reinvented myself several times over the last uh, 35 years. Can you imagine yourself ever retiring? No, not really, because uh, I think retirement has been completely oversold. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to cut myself off from uh, my social circles and my social connections. And because I truly enjoy working. So that's the thing. If you truly enjoy working, if you truly enjoy what you're doing, you don't feel this urge that what you should do is try to work as hard as possible, save as much money as you can so that you can retire early. So I will retire when uh, the moment comes that I'm no longer physically or mentally fit. But other than that, I will continue to work in some capacity. Maybe I will reinvent myself again and I'll become a freelancer, who knows, but I'm gonna continue working. Yes, yes. Now, it, it's always struck me that retirement is a design flaw. As a retirement financial planner that you quote in the book says, um, it's dangerous to your health and it's dangerous to your wealth. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. Was a funny uh, but you know, these things are changing, right? So for example, in the United States, about 40% of uh, retirees, they unretire. They go back to working at least part-time, yeah. 40%. And of early retirees, people who retire early, 52% go back to working part-time or full-time. Now, some of your listeners may, may say, well, that's because they realize they don't have enough money. Yeah. Uh, that is in part a motivation, but most of these people say that, that they got bored, uh, that they really wanted to reconnect, that they wanted something to do, that they wanted to feel that they're useful to society. So there's always a variety of motivations, but a lot of people go into retirement, they try it, and then they realize that they don't like it. My mother actually just retired. She was a nurse and then a full-time mother, and then she was a social worker, and then she became a therapist with psychoanalytic training. She was a, a psychoanalyst. Um, and she went from you know working 40, 50 hours a week to not working at all. And I'd really hoped that she would just try cutting down her hours to 10 or 20 hours a week. Now you can you know work as a therapist online or over the telephone. There's so many ways to sort of work incrementally, right? I think this kind of, the ability to work remotely is helpful for retirees. And my, meanwhile, my father, who, who was retired, is now looking at teaching high school. I, I think that for so many people, this is just what one does. And I, by, by the way, I should say that my mother retired at age 77, which is like a full 10 years, I think, later than the national average in the US. Yeah, absolutely. Those are great examples. And of course, uh, Rufus, we should also think about uh, people in physical occupations, uh, yeah. so very hard manual labor, like construction work and so on. And sure, uh, many people in that uh, occupation, they need to retire at some point, but maybe they don't have to retire in the sense of uh, just stopping to work. Maybe we can give them other skills and they can do, um, you know, for example, quality control, or they can do uh, record keeping, or they can do many other things as opposed to going into retirement so that they can remain active and engaged. What would you say, Mauro, to the folks in France who took to the streets recently protesting the government's plans to increase the retirement age from 60 to 64? Were they wrong to protest? Don't we have a right not to have to work? What, what do you think? Well, I think, uh, uh, you know, this uh, phenomenon in France is, uh, is really um, a good illustration of why we need to change. 
So the uh, average retirement age in France is like uh, 62 years. It's like uh, really, really early on. And they are complaining because it would uh, go up to 65, right? Which is still well below the American average. The problem is, once again, that they feel their jobs are not fulfilling. They have very little job satisfaction. They don't think their pay is good. Uh, their employers don't treat them well once they are age 50 because they want to get rid of them. So that's why we need to change our mindset, right? We need to think uh, about how to make jobs interesting to people. And we need to make it uh, possible for people to be lifelong learners. And if we accomplish that, then you'll see that very few people would uh, stage a demonstration because uh, they're preventing them from retiring early because they wouldn't want to retire that early. They would want to continue working. That's the problem. The problem is that we have designed jobs in such a way that people feel it's a punishment, that uh, work is a punishment, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. Is there an argument that older people staying in their in their jobs is actually an impediment to younger younger people who want to advance in their careers that the the high level c suite jobs are occupied by by old people who refuse to give up their positions so i think uh, this is a an instance of intergenerational conflict and yeah, we have yeah. to look for ways to turn it into intergenerational collaboration you see i think it's wrong to tell somebody who is uh, 65 you can no longer work because we need to give your job to somebody younger. Uh, you know, the right to work shouldn't depend on age. And it's actually constitutionally so in the United States after that famous uh, Supreme Court ruling from the 1970s, if you remember. Um, so, so if you're trying to create more jobs for young people, uh, taking them away from older people, I think uh, solves one problem, but then creates another. Yeah. Solves one injustice by creating another injustice. So I think what we need to do is to uh, increase the size of the pie rather than fight over the distribution of the pie. Yeah. When we think about intergenerational collaboration, one place we see this is in multi-generational homes, the, the mm -hmm. way people live. And you had a fascinating section of the book in which you talked about the rise of the nuclear family as an organizational model for, um, I guess, I guess this is true in in most of the developed world, right? That that mm -hmm. um, the aspiration has been for every nuclear family to live in their own white box in their own home, and I guess that this, you know, the Brady Bunch, the Brady Bunch fantasy, right? And that and and there may be a subset of people for whom that's a great experience, but there are a lot of people who are left behind with this model. Um, how do you think about kind of the rise of the, of the nuclear family as a social development and what's likely to happen, what needs to happen in, in the coming decades? Well, essentially that train has already left uh, the station. So the nuclear family defined as uh, two married parents with at least one child, one refrigerator, one washing machine, one car, and one dog, yeah, um, yeah. used to be 40% of American households back in the 1970s when Nixon was in the White House. But today it's only 18%. So we've gone from 40% to 18%. And the categories of households that have increased is, uh, or include couples who are not married, but they live together, uh, whether they have kids or not. Then people live it alone. So one third of Americans live alone by choice or because their spouse has uh, passed away. And finally, we have multi-generational households, which are about 12% or 13% of the total American population. 
So what we have is, uh, you know, that uh, change has already taken place, right? We're no longer in the 1960s or the 1970s. Uh, the nuclear family is no longer the norm in the United States. And uh, therefore, uh, I think uh, we need to change uh, a lot of things in order to adjust to that new situation. You quote a survey of 23,000 people looking for homes, I guess, you know, uh, looking to buy real estate. In 2016, uh, said that 44% of people looking to buy a house were looking for one that could accommodate parents and as well as children. Mm -hmm. And another 42 percent anticipated providing shelter to adult children. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yep. um, so right. So it seems like there's a trend towards back to multi-generational living, which was, of course, the norm in much of the world for a lot of our history. Oh, yeah, including the United States. Absolutely. Yes, I think this is one of the most interesting phenomena. And you know what? Multi-generational households in the United States, the poverty rate among them is much lower than for the general population. So it seems to be an arrangement that actually helps us address uh, many other social problems as well. Would you like to access a summary of a groundbreaking new book every single weekday created by the authors themselves in 12 minutes of audio or four minutes of text? How about beautiful video and audio e-courses? Did I mention ad-free versions of this podcast? You're probably thinking, don't tease me, Rufus. Such a thing could not possibly exist. Well, I am not teasing, folks. You can find all those things and more in the next Big Idea app. Just go to your app store. You can do this right now. Just pause this recording, click on the app store, and search for Next Big Idea. If you enjoy this podcast, you will love the app. Join our community, and you'll discover a bunch of bonuses. Listen to this podcast 24 hours before the general public. Enjoy in-depth e-courses based on the most game-changing books of the year. There is no better way to get smart fast. Download the Next Big Idea app right now. Now, when we think about the, the practical changes that are necessary to build this kind of society that's inclusive of various generations, that enables us to reinvent ourselves and uh, enables us to lift up people who've been left behind, what role do you think the government should play in supporting the perennials, this, this, this kind of mix of generations and, uh, and these opportunities that we're talking about. Um, I, I think of the GI Bill, which helped 8 million returning servicemen attend college. Um, arguably, we, we wouldn't have the advanced economy we have now if it weren't for that Absolutely. decision. Do we need a GI Bill 2.0? What does the government need to do to support this kind of transition you're describing? Yeah, I think the government needs to do two things. I mean, the first one is, let's not forget, the government is the biggest employer in the country. Uh, so not just the federal government, but government at all levels. So they need to change the way in which they see workers. Uh, they need to introduce programs for lifelong learning amongst their workers. Now, the second is in terms of regulation, in terms of tax incentives. I would change the rules for 401ks so that people could use the money in the 401k, not just for retirement, but also for retraining or for learning or for taking a sabbatical, right? And that the government can also introduce incentives for companies to consider workers of different ages and uh, obviously also to offer financial aid to people of different ages. So for example, there's only, I think I mentioned this in the book, there's only 18 or 20 states 
that provide financial assistance uh, to people above the age of 30 so that they can attend college. And you see, this is really important for teenage mothers because normally they cannot go to college in their 20s. They, they wait until uh, their 30s to perhaps uh, attempt to go into college. But then there's uh, fewer than half of uh, the states in the U.S. offer financial aid or offer ways for them to do so. How about companies? Um, I mean, I, I think we're probably already seeing some some innovation among companies help, helping with you know educational and upskilling programs. But do you think do you think there's more that companies should be doing, could be doing, to help support these transitions? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, most corporations are still in the stone age regarding this. They haven't changed at all. Uh, they haven't realized that uh, they're going to have to hire and retain older workers because there's a scarcity of uh, young people, right? Due to the decline in fertility. And also because older workers have experience, they have something that uh, they should be benefiting from. Uh, so companies need to change uh, big time. But uh, once again, I'm not expecting them to change from one day to the next. I think we need to be patient, but we need to be assertive and we need to be uh, you know, persistent in terms of asking for those changes. When you think of examples of people who've lived out the principles you describe in the book, you know, evolved in their careers and 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 had multiple chapters, are there, are there any particular examples for how we might want to live our own lives? Yeah. So, well, you mentioned earlier. I think it was your mother, right? Who yes. Has, yes. Uh, made uh, many career switches. I think she she would be, you know, uh, a perfect example for the book. Maybe for the second edition. I mean, you'll allow me to use her her experience. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. But there's a lot of people out there, uh, no. but uh, no more than three or four or five percent of the American population. Uh, they're not the norm because most of us were told that you have to stick to one line of work during your entire life. And that's the kind of uh, model that we have to um, abandon, I think. So we need to continue pushing. We need to continue telling people that uh, things have changed, that now the requirements of uh, new technology and the global economy are such that we're going to have to reinvent ourselves many times over. And therefore, we should change our mindset about how we run our lives. We have to become lifelong learners and uh, we have to think about work as something that should be fun and not a punishment, not something that we only do because we want to retire. I, I'd like to say that we get, we get to become lifelong learners, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I, I can recommend hosting a podcast for anyone who wants to uh, stay in a state of lifelong learning and uh, continue to challenge yourself in new ways because I, uh, I relish reading a new book every week and talking with fascinating people. And um, I've so enjoyed your book, Mauro, and, and so enjoyed this conversation with you. Thank you uh, so much for joining us. Oh, no. Thank you for having me, Rufus. It's been a wonderful conversation. Mauro Guillen's new book is called The Perennials, The Megatrends Creating a Post-Generational Society. You know, one of the big takeaways from this conversation is that the people who are going to succeed in the future are the ones who embrace lifelong learning today. And so if you want to become a lifelong learner, a good place to start is the Next Big Idea app. It's loaded with mini masterclasses from some of the biggest thinkers on the planet. People like Adam Grant, Gretchen Rubin, Daniel Pink, and Susan Cain. If you haven't used the app before, a good place to start is with our Career Boost Challenge. 
In just a few minutes a day, you can acquire new tools that'll help you solve problems, predict future trends, overcome challenges, and avoid burnout. To download our app, all you have to do is go to your app store on your phone, search for the next big idea. There is no better way to learn new skills fast. Download the Next Big Idea app right now. This episode was produced by me, Kayla Bissinger, sound designed by Mike Toda. We couldn't make this show without the support of all the perennials at the LinkedIn Podcast Network. Our ageless host is Rufus Griscom. See you next week.